turn to Matthew chapter 26. We are in a series on Matthew, and we have just left the upper room, gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and his disciples have prayed, and then he wakes them up saying, I see Judas coming. Uh, we are going to connect it to Palm Sunday in a bit, but I want to let you know where we are right now. Matthew 26, verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arresting. And going once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that one of Jesus' companion reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then will the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And this is the word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and active and cuts sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to make alive. It's able to bring death to self and resurrected life to being. Use it in the lives of your people to bring uh, good to them and glory to yourself. And we listen because uh, it's your word, and we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Palm Sunday. It's just something good about Palm Sunday. You know, it's kind of like I've always said almost every year, it's like it should be. That Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he's on a, a donkey like Zechariah had prophesied. And he enters into the city and he is praised by people saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118. And they put down their cloaks and their garments and their palm branches so to make a, a pathway for Jesus to walk. And everybody is celebrating the king. But the only problem is, is they don't understand who the king is. They all have a misunderstanding of King Jesus. James and John have recently just asked, can we sit on the right and the left? Can we be the vice presidents of your kingdom? Can we be the people that are the big wigs there? And they thought that Jesus was going to throw the Romans out and establish his own kingdom and have his people freed. Uh, the Romans thought that that might happen too. There might be an insurrection. And Jesus' disciples might rise up and, and, and do some treasonous acts. And so they were afraid that he was the king. But as you get into the week of Easter, 
you understand that the theme of Easter really is about the king. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is, is, is amazed that Jesus claims to be God, calls him that he's blasphemed. He tears his garment, but he sends him to Pilate. And Pilate says, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, It is as you have said, but my kingdom is not of this world. He's taken by Pilate, and after several times of trying to pass him off as innocent, Pilate hands him over to the crowd. The crowd dresses him in a purple robe, obviously, and puts a crown of thorns on his head and a stick in his hand, and they begin to do what? Bow down and worship him, mocking him as the king. Tell us who hit you. Spit on his face and things like that. They nailed him to the cross. And what did the sign above him say? Jesus, King of the Jews. The King is being crucified. And what did the thief on the side of him say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's all about the King. And what I want to say is, as you read today's passage and look at this betrayal and arrest, you want to say, is that any way to treat a king? We want to look at the king's betrayal, uh, the king's reaction, and the king's control or his sovereignty. The king's betrayal. Judas has already arranged for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He has already decided with his army, his cohort coming with him, that he would identify Jesus by a kiss. You know, we don't have social media and you didn't have TV or anything like that. And a lot of people knew about Jesus, but they might not know who Jesus was. And in the darkness of a garden, you know, even with a moonlit night, they might not recognize who he was. So Judas agreed that I'll show who he is by a kiss. And a kiss, as you know, was a sign not only of friendship, but it was a sign of real greeting and affection. And in Mark's gospel, it says not only did, did Judas kiss him, he kissed him fervently with an intensity, kind of like he went overboard and, and made a more dramatic uh, expression of friendship by kissing him. And the word in the Greek for kiss and the word for friend is the same. There's no word for kiss. It's phileo, which is we take to like. To like somebody is to kiss somebody. But Jesus not only says, you know, you betray me with a kiss. He says, friend, do what you came for. And when Jesus calls him friend, a lot of people say he was being sarcastic. Hey, friend, what a friend you are, you know. Stabbing me in the back, turning me over to be crucified. You know, what kind of friend... But I believe that it's not sarcastic. It's really Jesus saying, Friend, do you realize what you're doing? It's a word to the conscience of Judah, Judas. It's a word to his, his guilty conscience. God wants to prick it. Even though it's been ordained before the foundation of the world, it's been decreed that he's the son of perdition. Even in this last moment, Jesus is offering him a chance to repent Friend, friend, do you betray me with a kiss? 
what's it like to be betrayed? You know, I've thought about that. What, you know, I've never known real betrayal. But I've heard of other pastors who have been betrayed. I can't imagine somebody like one of your elders or your deacons basically starting a rumor or something that would bring your ministry down. But the king in the Old Testament, David, knew what betrayal was. Uh, Absalom, his own son, started a rebellion, wanted to take over the kingdom and, and created a coup. And he took a lot of David's men with him, but the one man that meant more to David and heard him word was a guy by the name Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's right-hand man. And Ahithophel had gone and aligned with Absalom. And in Psalm 41 and verse 9, it says, A friend, one who has dipped bread with me, has betrayed me. And so the king of Israel, David, understood betrayal by a friend, but the king of kings understood it at a degree nobody else ever will. What should Judas's reaction have been? You could finish this statement, we love because he first loved us. And Jesus had not just kissed him in a greeting that he had done what a kiss represents. He loved Judas. He had treated Judas with great love and compassion for three years. He had called him. He followed him. That means he not only ate the last supper with him, but he ate many suppers with him. He was with Jesus all the time. He heard all the teaching. He he saw all the miracles. He saw the resurrection probably of Lazarus just a few days earlier. He had been told that he would betray him, and still he did it anyway. But I want to look at it in a positive way. What should love do to us? It should make us more loving. The problem in our lives is when we are not faithful or we betray our faith, it's because something's wrong with our love, something's wrong with our heart, that our loyalty has not been developed, our heart has not allowed the Word of God to take root and sink in and develop that affection. And the affection of God has an expulsive power. It, it, it pushes out everything else. And that's what it did in the lives of the martyrs. You remember Polycarp? Polycarp was brought in. He was an old man, and uh, he was a very revered man, and he was brought in because he wouldn't make that little sacrifice and say that Caesar is Lord. And they brought him in, and they told him that he was going to be martyred unless he said Caesar is Lord, and Polycarp wouldn't do it. And they begged him, you know, what, what, what hurt will it do just to take a little bit of incense and throw it in the fire and say that, that Caesar is Lord? And Polycarp made that great statement, the Lord has been faithful to me 80 and 4 years. How can I deny Him now? You see, what we need is we need more love to Christ. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes. It's by Elizabeth Prentice who lost several children in childbirth. And as she began to ask God what she needed, she wrote this hymn. More love to thee, O Christ, 
more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are their messengers and sweet their refrain. Then they shall sing with me, More love, O Christ, to thee. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be, More love, O Christ, to thee. We need to have more love for Christ. What about Jesus' reaction? Judas came not by himself, and not with a small band of people, but Judas came with an army. And we get that from John chapter 18, about verse 3. It says that, uh, that Judas came leading a cohort. Other translations say a battalion or a company. But a cohort in the Greek language there would mean probably a thousand people. Some people say maybe 600 to a thousand people. And they had the temple police with them as well. And they had swords and they had lanterns and they had clubs and this army of people come. We, we don't gather there. There's, there's a small band of people there. There are hundreds of people probably. And Jesus wonders, why did you come out here in the night to, to arrest me? I've been teaching in the temple all week long, and you had your opportunity. Translated, you bunch of cowards. Jesus says, who are you looking for? This We get this from John 18. If you want to get the whole picture, read every synoptic gospel and John. They all account, give an account of this. But in John's gospel, we say that uh, Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. It's translated in most, in most of your translations, I am he. But he didn't say that. He said, I am. You recognize that? That's the divine name of God. God gave to Moses when the burning bush was not consumed. Who do I tell them? sent me, I am that I am sent you. And when I said, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am. Go back this afternoon and read what happened when Jesus said, I am. All the armies, all the men with swords and clubs and torches fell down on the ground. They fell down. Was it in reverence? Was it in shock? Was it in amazement? Or was the power of the Word of God so strong that by speaking that I am overwhelmed them? They fell down before the king. And Peter realized, hey, this is game on. And they had developed an arsenal. The disciples had two swords. Two. Two swords. And Peter got one of them, 
and he went to whop off one of the soldiers' head, obviously. He ducked and he cut off his right ear. Luke, the doctor, says it was the right ear. He, nobody else mentions that. It's the right ear. And Jesus stoops down and picks up the ear and reattaches it. And what you see is Jesus is tenderly caring for even those that hate him. He's told us to pray for our enemies, to even love them. And here Jesus is loving them. By taking an ear and putting it back on. Jesus tells Peter, no swords. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. No swords. It didn't mean there never was a time for swords. Romans chapter 13 talked about the government given the power of the sword. But the church is not to use the sword. The church is not to use force to, to spread the gospel. The hymn writer says it, uh, For not with swords loud clashing, nor rolling of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. With deeds of love and mercy. And Jesus tells Peter, even if I wanted there to be a war, I could command my father and he would send six he would send 6,000, <coughs> he would send 12 legions of angels. A legion 6,000. He would send 72,000 angels, just probably more than that could be at his disposal. But Jesus doesn't need Peter to grab the two, uh, two swords and go to battle for him. The church has often tried to use force, warfare, inquisitions. Remember when Luther and the Reformers started the Protestant Reformation, they um, had some good ideas. And some of the peasants thought they were great ideas that need to be implemented by force. And so in Germany, the farmers rebelled against their feudal lords. They started what was known as the Peasants' War. And they didn't want a whole lot of, you know, things that were unreasonable. They wanted to choose their own pastor. I think that's pretty good. They only wanted to pay for just tithes and taxes. They wanted to be considered free men instead of serfs. They wanted to pay fair rent and other reasonable demands. And since Luther was their leader, they went to him to kind of get his stamp of approval on the rebellion. And Luther was sympathetic, but he wouldn't endorse the rebellion. And he came up with this Latin phrase, non via sed verbo. Non vi said verbo. Not by violence, but by the word. That Luther was telling them and telling us the same thing that Jesus was telling his disciples. That the kingdom of God is going to grow by the word of God being proclaimed. 
by the gospel being presented and sinners repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and following Him. By deeds of kindness, the kingdom goes. John also tells us that not only was it a cohort that came to arrest Jesus, he tells us the name of the servant who had soldier who had his ear cut off, his right ear cut off. His name was Malchus. And why would you put Malchus's name in there? It's almost like, go talk to Malchus. Can you imagine Malchus walking around the next day, you know, <laughs> it's back home. It's really there, you know. It's really there. Archbishop Sproul said, just imagine, th this cohort that was sent was probably the same cohort that took uh, Jesus to Pilate. And maybe it was the same cohort that took Jesus to the cross to be crucified. And maybe this soldier was the one that when Jesus gave up his spirit said truly this was the Son of God and was converted. The kindness of God. The words of Jesus had changed his heart and his life. Two weeks ago I told you about William Tyndall who was... Uh, <clears throat> the one responsible for translating the Bible into English. He translated it from, uh, not the Latin, but he translated it from the Greek and the Hebrew. But he was betrayed by one of his friends. Remember I told you they went to supper and when they were coming back, the friend stepped back and when uh, Tyndall stepped in between the the doors, he pointed at him and they arrested him. They took him to the castle and put him in the in the jail. And while he was there, he was a model, a model soldier, model prisoner. And he wrote a letter. This is the last letter he wrote. He wrote to the head of whoever it would be. He wrote, I beg your lordship to have the kindness to send me, I'm not going to read it word for word, the kindness to send me from the goods which I have, a warmer cap. I suffer greatly from the cold. And a warmer coat, for the one I have is very thin. And I ask that I be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg you, I beseech your clemency, that he will kindly permit me to have a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary that I might pass my time in study. As a result of his patient suffering and faithful witness, the jail keeper and his daughter both came to faith in Jesus Christ, along with other members of the household. The kingdom of God grows by the word of God being penetrated in acts of love and kindness to the people's hearts. And God wins him over. God knocks him down. The Word of God is powerful. The last thing is, not only do we see Jesus' betrayal and Jesus' reaction, but we see Jesus' control. <clears throat> Jesus is in complete control here. He tells them that all of this has to happen so that the prophecies may be fulfilled. When you read the Gospels, it's just amazing how many times Jesus refers to 
I am going to Jerusalem, and there I'll be arrested. I'll be betrayed. I'll be killed. I'll be buried, and I'll raise again on the third day. And if you go through the Gospels and you take any one of those prophecies, you would find that there are just they're, they're tens of them. I mean, there are 10, 15 of them at least, but there are three before this one in Matthew where Jesus, even the night before, tells him what's going to happen. And it's going to happen just like this. And the reason it's going to happen just like this is because it's been decreed from all eternity that it's as if Jesus is walking according to a timetable. And he talks about this hour as my hour it says early in John to his mother, my hour's not yet come. And finally his hour has come. In Luke's translation or Luke's version of this account, Jesus tells him, I got to get to the right page. Luke tells him in Luke 22, he says, every day I was with you in the temple and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus says, <clears throat> okay, just want you to understand, this is your hour. This is all you have. Take your best shot. You know, take your biggest punch. Call your best play. This is all you have. You have this little window. And he's reminding him that that hour is even God's hour because God has allowed it. The dark hours are God's hours. The hours of grief are God's hours. The hours of trial are God's hours. It's amazing. One writer said this, What comfort and courage that gives us in our dark hours. It is true that our present trials will not last forever. Soon we will enter the eternal light of our salvation. But even this present darkness, whatever it is, is under the power of God. If God was at work even during the dark hours of Jesus' betrayal, then whether we can see it or not, we believe with hope that He's at work right now in the dark hours of our trials. It's an amazing thing. God's sovereignty. I want you to turn in your hymn book to page 684. Randolph, don't fret. We're not going to end with this. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that to you. But I just want you... 684. What if you could really pray this with meaning? My times are in thy hand, my God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hand, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. My times are in thy hand, why should I doubt or fear? My Father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. My times are in thy hand, 
Jesus the crucified, whose hands my cruel sins had pierced, are now my guard and guide. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, our times are in your hands, and we wish them there. May they give us comfort and courage, even as we go forth today. In Jesus' name, amen.